We begin this Sunday a five-week series on prayer as five of us will each preach one sermon on this subject, and uh, what a great way to begin the new year as we think about prayer. But brothers and sisters, I must confess to you that as I preach about prayer, I'm preaching to myself and just as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. And let no one imagine, please, that I have prayer all figured out or that I could, could say, you know, look at me as an example of prayer. No, I need exhortation to pray just as much as anyone. As we focus our attention upon the Word of God as an act of worship and, and we focus upon Christ, let's uh, look at the last chapter of James that uh, Jordan read for us a few minutes ago. Now, as you may remember, James is the epistle of practical Christianity. And how might James desire to end this work? What might James desire to be the, the last thing that he says to us that might be freshest on our memory as we step away from reading or hearing the book of James? And, well, perhaps James would save his greatest passion for last. Did you know that during his lifetime, James earned a peculiar nickname? It's Old Camel Knees. The ancient church historian Eusebius wrote this about James. He used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's. So often did he pray that he was referred to as old camel knees because he developed knots on his knees from his long seasons of prayer. Envision that, a man with, with big calluses and knots on his knees who had the nickname Old Camel Knees. If anyone was ever qualified to exhort us to pray, if anyone was, was ever qualified to say, follow me as I follow Christ in prayer, it's Old Camel Knees because he practiced what he preached. And James concludes this ever-so-practical letter with an exhortation for us to pray. If we are to be doers of the word, James 1.22, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves, we will be people who pray. James tells us in chapter 2 that faith without works is dead and useless. But if our faith is alive and working and vibrant, we will be people who pray. Nothing eternally significant is ever accomplished without prayer. Let me say that again. Nothing eternally significant is ever accomplished without prayer. And so for the final salvo in this letter, old camel knees wants you and me to grow some calluses on our knees. Please turn in your Bible, if you're not there already, to James 5 and verse 13. Jordan read the whole chapter to give us the context, but I'm convinced we can never hear the Word of God too many times. So let's look again now at verses 13 through 20. James 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, 
Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the errors of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. As we look at this last portion of James, we see the words pray or prayer seven times. This corresponds, interestingly, to the seven references to patience, waiting, and endurance in verses 7 to 12. So it all flows together. We cannot learn great patience, verse 7, without even greater prayer, verse 13. So James here gathers a wide variety of literary tools to motivate and revitalize our prayers. He, he first prods us with an exhortation to pray, verses 13 and 14, and then he stirs us with a motivation for prayer, verses 15 and 16. He inspires us with an illustration for prayer, verses 17 and 18, and he spurs us on for a, with a situation for prayer, verses 19 and 20. And so it's all about prayer. I will state the big idea like this. This is the shortest big idea I think we've ever had. Let us pray. Let us pray. In every situation, in every circumstance, in every trial, in every trouble, in every joy, in every need, all the more, let us pray. So how's your prayer life? In his fine book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, Pastor Kent Hughes wrote this, The Open Secret of many Bible-believing churches is that a vanishing small percentage of those talking about prayer are actually doing what they are talking about. This is especially true among men to our detriment and shame. Let us pray. May James this afternoon stimulate and revitalize us to pray even more. So as I said, the, the first tool that James digs out is an exhortation for prayer, verses 13 and 14. Now, perhaps you remember from when Andy preached through the book of James about four and a half years ago that James is very fond of exhortation. In this short letter, he uses over 50 imperative verbs. James is a just do it kind of guy. In verses 13 and 14, there are three pairs of question followed by exhortation or command, exhorting us to pray in every situation. And in these two verses, James would say to us, every situation is an occasion for prayer. Every situation is an occasion for prayer. The first pair, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, this word suffering is not speaking primarily about sickness. Sickness is not the subject until verse 14. This particular word means to endure evil or to endure affliction. Paul used the same word for his sufferings in prison in 2 Timothy. He also urges Timothy to endure hardship 
same word in the work of the ministry and in James 5 9 what what Jordan read Paul spoke of the Old Testament prophets as an example of suffering same word so is anyone living in a hard situation tough times troubled discouraged then says James let him pray and don't miss the connection with verses 1 to 6 is Someone taking advantage of you? Is someone withholding your wages that they may live in luxury and comfort at your expense? Verse 5, is, is someone actively persecuting you? Verse 6, those are all examples of the kind of suffering that James is speaking about. And those he says, let us pray. If life isn't fair, cultivate patience, verses 7 and 8. Stop complaining. Verses 9 through 11, stop swearing of any oaths, verse 12, and continually pray. The present tense of the verb here has that sense of keep on praying. Let it be a habit and a lifestyle as we respond to every situation with prayer. And then James continues on a happier note with the rest of verse 13. The second pair, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Praising God in song is also a form of prayer. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, we will be singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. It's a prayer. And it is just as important to praise God in prayer when, when life is good, happy times, joyful times, as it is to pray when trouble comes knocking at our door. In a fine commentary on James, Alec Macher Yes, you recognize that name, that same guy that uh, we have heard from many times as Andy preached through Isaiah. Alec Macher in his commentary on James summarizes verse 13 like this. We have a God for all seasons, both in periods of suffering and trouble and at times of joy. Prayer and praise alike acknowledge that he is sufficient. To pray to him is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs, and to praise is to acknowledge his sovereign power in appointing our circumstances, whether as the source of supply and need or the source of our gladness, the gladness of our joy, God is our sufficiency. Amen. When you're suffering, troubled, pray. When you're joyful, sing his praises. Then in Verse 14, this exhortation for prayer becomes even more specific with a third prayer, question, and exhortation. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So matter, no, no matter what the situation, James says, let us pray. Verse 14 describes a ministry for prayer and healing in the local church and how it should work. And note, please, how different this is than the modern faith healers who travel around and put on TV shows or large services but have no lasting relationships with the people. James tells us how to approach the issue of healing. Is anyone among you sick? He gives us three steps. Step one, let him or her call for the elders of the church. So the process begins with the sick person initiating it. Call for the elders of your own church. 
not the flamboyant TV personality, not the faith healer, not someone you don't really know, but the elders of your church who know you, who love you, who have already been praying for you. Furthermore, James 5.14, this is not a public healing service where all the sick and injured come to a meeting to get healed. When James says, let him call for the elders of the church, the implication is that the elders come to him. This is probably a small, private, family gathering of the sick person, his immediate family, and the elders. And by the way, did you know that when the New Testament speaks of the elders of the church, it is always plural, elders. That means the church is never a one-man show. It is a, a team of elders working together. And, and so step one, let him or her call for the elders of the church. And, and that is important because it takes humility and faith to initiate, to ask, to say, please, come pray for me. And then step two, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what do the elders do? Well, the emphasis is let them pray. Pray for healing. Ask God for healing. And what really makes the difference, according to verse 15? It's the prayer. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, along with that prayer, the the elders also anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. And this is not some special, holy, blessed oil that carries magical healing properties because what was it that restored the one who is sick? It is the prayer. The olive oil here may be a symbol of the Holy Spirit, as the oil often represents the Spirit in the Bible, and the the elders anoint the sick person with oil as as a symbol of the Holy Spirit working in the healing process, and that is a very possible understanding. But when James wrote this, there was an even more practical reason for anointing the sick sick person with oil. The Greek word for anointing here, alipho, was not the primary word for a ceremonial anointing, but it was commonly used in medical books for rubbing an injury with oil. The Greek physician Galen called oil the best of all medicine. Isaiah 1.6 mentions oil for treating bruises, welts, and raw wounds. William Barclay explains, The use of olive oil was one of the best remedial agencies known to the ancients. They used it internally and externally. Internally, of course, to rub on, or externally to rub on wounds, and internally, well, take your castor oil. Remember also the parable of the Good Samaritan? A man had been mugged by robbers, beaten, stripped, seriously wounded, and tossed in a ditch where he was left to die. Luke 10, 34. The Good Samaritan came to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Good Samaritan was using the best medical knowledge of his day. He used wine as a cleansing agent because it contains alcohol, and oil to promote healing. So in James 5.14, what we most likely see is prayer working right alongside practical medicine. Doctors, of course, were not always available, just as they're not always available today. So the elders brought oil. They ministered to the spirit with prayer and to the body with oil. Now, 
stepping back from those details about anointing and healing ministries, what is the main thought here? It's pray. In every situation, pray. Are you in trouble? Pray. Are you joyful? Sing prayers. Are you sick? Call for the elders to pray. What is your first response when trouble or joy or sickness or anything else comes? Is it, let us pray? Every situation, James would say to us, is an occasion for prayer. So James begins first with a exhortation for prayer, just do it. And then in verses 15 and 16, James moves from the exhortation for prayer to the motivation for prayer. He wants us to understand why we must pray. Look at verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be given him, forgiven him. What's the motivation for prayer? It's effective. And that is the simple message in both verse 15 and again in verse 16. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Our part is to pray, but it is the Lord who ultimately gives the healing. The Lord will raise him up. So what about medicine and doctors? One writer explained it well this way. When the aspirin works, it is the Lord who has made it work. When the surgeon sets the broken limb and the bone knits, it is the Lord who made it knit. I'm sure Dr. Joel and others could provide many other examples, but there's always that spiritual dimension where the Lord makes it work. So James 5.14, the Lord will raise him up. Sometimes he chooses to do that through doctors and medicine. Sometimes he does it supernaturally magnificently. But does verse 15 mean that God will always heal if we just pray and have enough faith? And if God doesn't heal, does that mean we didn't have enough faith? No. Let us remember the bigger picture in the scriptures. For example, in 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Trophimus had become so sick that Paul had to leave him behind in Miletus and go on without him. Well, didn't Paul pray for his healing? Of course he did. But God didn't heal him, at least not right at that moment. Epaphroditus was another friend of Paul of whom it says, Epaphroditus almost died. Timothy had frequent illnesses. Galatians 4.13, Paul says to the church in Galatia, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Paul had some bodily illness. He had to take a break from his missionary journeys and stop in the, the region of Galatia to recover. He wasn't healed, at least not right away. And God used that for good And that during that time of convalescence, he also planted the church in Galatia. And in fact, Paul was never healed of his thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 8. So, so people who claim that God will always heal if we just pray in faith are not reading their Bible very thoroughly. We pray because it makes a difference. In God's time, in His will, He will raise up the sick person. 
And in fact, in his own way, he will heal every disease and every sickness in the Christian because he will heal your last disease and mine by raising us up in a new imperishable body that will never be sick again. Hallelujah. We should always pray. James 5.16 adds now a third important step in the healing ministry. Step one, call for the elders of the church. Step two, let the elders pray, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Step three, confess your sins to one another. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now think about that. Secret and unconfessed sins can make you physically ill. After King David repented and confessed his sins, he he realized how they had been tearing up his body. Psalm 32, he wrote, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Unconfessed sin can make you sick. Now, not all sickness is caused by sin, but some sickness is certainly comes, comes from sin. And sometimes our prayers for healing may be not answered because our sin creates a barrier between us and God. And so reflection... Repentance and confession of sin is an essential part of the the prayer for healing. And that brings James right back to that same motivation for prayer at the end of verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. But how can we who are sinners be righteous? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, says 1 John 1.9. And then our prayers can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man has great strength, says one translation. So prayer, said Spurgeon, is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. The fervent prayer of a righteous person can move the muscles of God. That is a motivation to pray. So in order to invigorate our prayers and encourage us to develop some camel knees of our own, James uses an exhortation for prayer, verses 13 and 14, and uh, a motivation for prayer, verses 15 and 16, and then next an illustration for prayer, verses 17 and 18. Look at the picture he sets before us Verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, in this illustration, what is the first thing he wants us to know about Elijah? Elijah was a man with a nature just like yours and mine. He had the same limitations, the same sufferings, the same struggles, the same doubts, the same kind of sins. And yet when Elijah prayed fervently, amazing things happened. Let me remind you of a little bit of the background to this story. 
Elijah lived in a time so much like ours that it's a little bit scary. The worship of God had become very superficial. The national leaders were involved in immorality. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were leading the nation into apostasy, into Baal worship, and all kinds of evil. And on this scene, Elijah just suddenly appears. 1 Kings 17.1 is the first mention of Elijah in the Bible, and it says this. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall surely be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He suddenly appears, he is standing before the king, and he says, it is not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain in Israel. Now, Israel already has a dry and arid climate. Imagine what Southern California or Mexico would look like if they had no rain, not even dew, for three and a half years. Would that get some attention? Would that hopefully wake some people up, motivate them to pray? And after three and a half years without a drop of rain or even dew, Elijah called for a prophecy conference, 1 Kings 18.1. And this is a significant part of the story. Before he prayed for rain to come, Elijah called for the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, to call on their God to answer their prayers. And it tells us they called out to Baal all day long. By the way... Baal was the Canaanite god who lived in the clouds and gave rain. This was a test as to which god was real. This was a test as to which god could really answer their prayers and take care of their needs. They called out to Baal all day long, but nothing happened. Baal wasn't available that day. Perhaps Baal was busy. Perhaps Baal was indisposed. Then Elijah prepared a sacrifice to the Lord God. He poured water all around it. Think about where'd that water come from? That was precious stuff. That was hard to find. He poured water all around it and he prayed. And fire came down from heaven and it consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, the water. And finally the people confessed the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And only then, after this confrontation with the prophets of Baal and the people understanding that the Lord is God and he can answer our prayers, then Elijah prayed for rain. 1 Kings 18.42 tells us that he bowed down and he placed his head between his knees. I can barely get my head to touch my knees. And he placed his head between his knees and seven times he prayed that it was, would rain. And after each time of praying, he sent his servant to look out over the horizon. And finally, on the seventh time, the, the servant said, I see a little cloud the size of a man's hand forming on the horizon. And Elijah sent a message to King Ahab, get down the mountain before your chariot gets stuck in the mud. And sure enough, it was a heavy, heavy rain. It's a great Bible story. It's a great illustration of the power of prayer. But, but where did James want us to, to start thinking about this? Elijah was a man with a nature just like yours and mine. And if you ever want to know more about that, read the next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19. 
the effective prayer of a righteous person, a righteous Christian in Grace Fellowship Church, one cleansed and made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, that effective prayer can accomplish powerful things. Prayer is that slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. The English poet Tennyson wrote, more things are wrought by prayer in this, than this world ever dreams of. So Elijah gives us an exhortation for prayer, verses 13 and 14, a motivation for prayer, verses 15 and 16, an illustration for prayer, verses 17 and 18, and that finally leads to a situation for prayer, verses 19 and 20. James desperately, James describes a situation that desperately needs effective prayers of righteous people. Verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. At first glance, these last two verses in the book seem to be a little bit disconnected from everything else, but the, the connection is prayer. If you are a faithful Christian, if you are a doer of the word, someday you will need to lovingly, gently, biblically confront someone who has strayed from the truth. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if, anyone is, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. So it's the goal. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So I am my brother's keeper. So are you. If someone in your family or your circle of friends strays, or literally the word is wanders, wanders from the truth, verse 19, you have a responsibility to try to turn him or her back from the error of, of those ways and, and save that soul from death. This is probably speaking of physical death because it's possible for a Christian to become so hardened in sin that, that God takes away that life rather than letting them continue in sin. Now the word I said is strays or wanders. And by the way, I have never seen a Christian suddenly Stand up from having devotions, slam the Bible closed, and say, I don't believe it anymore. I've never seen it happen suddenly. But too often, I have seen people wander away from the truth. It happens slowly. One small compromise here, another small compromise, here, compromise there, stop attending church services just once or twice, and then a little more, then a little more, and suddenly... No, not suddenly. They're far, far away from the Lord. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you've had a friend or a family member wander away from the Lord and, and you knew that you had a responsibility to, to confront them and as much as you'd like to squirm out of it, the Holy Spirit just doesn't let you, then you know that that's a situation for prayer, that it requires much prayer. Restoration of a brother or a sister is a situation that requires much prayer and then gentle confrontation and love. It's not the only situation for prayer, of course, but it's an awfully good example. And so the final eight verses of James are one of the strongest exhortations to pray found anywhere in the New Testament. And it is a 
desperately needed word for the church at large, the church worldwide today. A few years back, more than 17,000 members of a major evangelical denomination were surveyed about their prayer habits while attending seminars on prayer for spiritual awakening. Because they attended this kind of seminar, we can assume these people are above average in their interest in prayer. And yet surveys reveal that they pray an average of less than five minutes a day. There were also 2,000 pastors and pastors' wives in these same seminars. By their own admission, they pray less than seven minutes a day. It's very easy to make people feel guilty about failure in prayer. That's not, to, that, not the intent, but we must come to grips with the fact that to be like Jesus, we must pray. Nothing eternal will ever be accomplished without prayer. Faith that works is faith that prays. Jesus was and he still is our example in prayer as even now he is making intercession for us from heaven. So in closing, let me ask you a few questions to reflect upon just between you and God. Do you really desire to pray? How much time in your typical day do you have for prayer? Do you make time to stop the merry-go-round, to get off and pray? How often do you pray for our nation? The hearts of kings and presidents have been changed by prayer, and we need desperately to pray for our country. How often do you pray for unsaved family members and friends? Every revival in history has begun with prayer. We all know people who are sick and hurting. Did you pray for them this past week? We may know people who need a job. Did you take it to the Lord in prayer? The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much, but fervent prayer is one of the most difficult, demanding things that we can do. It requires time, dedication, holy sweat. What realistic commitment do you need to make today between you and God? And I say realistic. You don't start out jogging by trying to run a marathon. That just leads to discouragement and failure. Start with something small, maybe 10 minutes a day, and build from there. James hits us pretty hard here. Perhaps I have too, but be assured I'm hitting myself just as much as anyone else. This is the word of God. May we be doers of the word. Let us pray. Let's bow for a moment of quiet reflection, and then I'll close this sermon time in prayer. Oh, Father, through your Holy Spirit, use these words to make us grow, to grow in our commitment to prayer. Through this month ahead and four more sermons and from four more of our brothers to cause us to make the year 2022 a year where more and more we have grown in prayer and given ourselves to prayer. And may we rejoice together in the fruit confident that the effective prayer of righteous people 
Righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. Righteous because we have confessed our sins and been cleansed of all unrighteousness. Righteous for no other reason but for what Christ has done. May those effective prayers of a righteous people accomplish beyond our greatest imaginations in the year ahead. And I pray it that Jesus will get all the glory in his name. Amen.